I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. As you're turning to Judges chapter 6, I want to just remind you that in the seat backs in front of you, the pew backs in front of you, there's an info card. If you ever have a prayer request, if you ever have, uh, you know, you're ever looking for information about our church or you want to communicate something to me or to one of the pastors, make sure you use these cards. Fill one of these out. If you're here, maybe for the first time, fill this out, drop it in one of the offering boxes on your way out that are right by the main doors to this uh, little chapel. We'd love for you to go ahead and do that, and we'll do our best to follow up with you in a responsible way. Just wanna, just wanted to make sure that we don't forget that. Um, man, I've been thinking about the cultural landscape of our nation a lot the last several years. I've been thinking about, man, even our church and the state of our church. And I've been thinking about my own zeal and my own passion and my own enthusiasm for Christ. And I wonder, how courageous am I truly going to be? How courageous are we going to be when temptation shows up at our doorstep, when the reality of sacrifice and the reality of difficulty and hardship and persecution um, because of our stand for Christ, when it shows up at our doorstep, how much courage are we going to have? I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon this last week. He said this, Our good Lord and Master ought not to be followed by cowards. And man, that's a powerful statement because I think that it's a reminder for us today that we need to be bold in our present day and age. You know, I, um, I found a video several years ago on the internet. It was on YouTube. It went viral. About 12 years ago, there was a 10-year-old girl by the name of Zia Terry, and she stood for the very first time at the top of what must have seemed like the largest ski jump in the history of the world. And as she was standing at the top of this ski jump, she was contemplating her own risks and what she was about to embark and what she was about to participate in. And she was asking herself, is the reward worth the risk? And in the process, as she's contemplating what she's about to do and how she's about to face down her fears, let's look at how she responds on this video. I want you to watch this video. I'll be fine. Have fun. I'll do it. Well, here goes something, I guess. Okay, you can do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump. You got it. Whoa, my ski's slipping off. Just remember, never snowplow, okay? No snow house. Keep it straight and you'll be fine. Do okay. You can do on the 20. Straight. Do you go faster on the end run? A little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Is it any steeper, do you think? Not same, much. Same steepness, it's just longer. Well, just longer. Just longer. Just a bigger 20, that's all. Yep. That's <laughs> a fun. bigger 20. Go ahead. You got this. I got it. <laughs> It's fine. You'll, you'll be fine. Okay. Here. The longer you wait, you'll be more scared. I go.
Just the suspense at the top of the first time freaks you out. That's the only thing. It's so fun. <laughs> huh? 60 seems like nothing now. Whoa! <laughs> You step out and you take a risk. And all of a sudden, everything that you've done before, everything that scared you to f- before, almost seems like nothing in comparison. Did you hear what this little 10-year-old girl said at the beginning of that video, the very beginning? I heard the chuckle, so you must have heard it. She says, here goes something, I, I-, I guess. <laughs> like She wasn't sure. She had a tremendous amount of fear. But what she does, she steps into her skis, she leans over them, and she lets, lets herself into the unknown. And she realizes her capabilities. And you watch a video like that, and you're inspired by that level of courage. Because that's what a 10-year-old girl shows when she steps into those skis and goes down that massive jump. How many of you would dare go down something quite that steep? Probably none of us. And so she, she inspires people by watching this, showing us what it looks like to have courage. And our text today that we're going to be looking at in Judges chapter 6 is really a glimpse into the life of a man um, as we look at him who didn't have a whole lot of courage. He probably could have learned a thing or two from this young 10-year-old girl. In fact, we're going to look at the life of a man in the Old Testament that lacked all of the qualities of courage but still allowed God to use him, and we're going to see him in the introducing parts or the, the beginning parts of this, this uh, text. We're going to see him to, to appear really almost as a wimp, to be honest with you. But the fact of the matter is, is that our God loves to take people that are wimpy and turn them into warriors, doesn't he? He loves to turn people into warriors that don't think they have the courage, that don't think that they have the faith. And it doesn't matter who you are this morning. It doesn't matter what your history is or what you're lacking or what you think you're missing in the process of being used by God. If he wants to use you, if God wants to use you, he will make you into the person that he wants you to be and get you where he wants you to go. We can look at scripture. We can see the examples of average people, people like Moses, people like Abraham, people like Mary, people like Peter, and they were used immensely by God, but it wasn't first that it was first that they had to overcome their fears and they had to develop some courage. And so the story that we're going to look at this morning just happens to be taking place during the history of Israel that was a part of the judges. And this was a a 300 year history in the time of Israel that was kind of a dark period where the people were not really obeying God. They were not really following the Lord. In fact, scripture says they were doing every man what was right in his own eyes. There was no earthly king. This is before Saul. This is before David. This is before Solomon. God was the king of Israel. And the heroes of Israel, heroes like Moses and Aaron, and heroes like uh, Joshua, and heroes that went through the wilderness and then conquered Canaan land. They had all passed away. And there was a new generation of people that were inhabiting the promised land. And in this 300-year dark period in Israel's history, they had now captured Canaan. And just like they did in almost every history, in part of their history, they had only half obeyed the Lord because they didn't drive out their enemies out of the promised land that were occupying the land when God commanded them to drive them out. So because of that, 
there was an influence of the pagans that were enemies of the Israelites that kind of remained in this area. And this pagan influence continued to creep back in to Israel. And it was a big problem, and God would get frustrated with it. He would get angry at his people because they were, they were following other gods, and they were being influenced by the enemy nations all around them. And Israel's strong leaders were dead, and everyone began to do what was right in their own eyes. In fact, Judges chapter 2, this is not going to be our main text this morning, but Judges chapter 2, verse 10, speaks to this, kind of setting up all of these different, um, I guess, all of these different reigns of the different judges in Israel. Verse 10 says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work... Um, um, did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And this is where we're at in Israel's history. They've provoked the Lord to anger. They sink into these cycles of sin. And many of you who are familiar with the Old Testament and Israel's history, you kind of know about these sin cycles. Um, and really what it looked like is it looked like um, the Israelites would rebel against God. They would turn their backs on God. They would begin to serve other gods, lesser gods. God would then reprimand them. They would then become oppressed by enemy nations they would get tired of the oppression, they would then repent, they would be rescued, and then they would repeat this process over and over and over again. And the more they fell into these sin cycles, the deeper their sin became, the deeper their rebellion went uh, against God, and the further they slipped away from God. And so every time in Israel's history, when they would enter into these sin cycles, they would fall further from God and it would take them longer and longer to repent of their sin. But when Israel did repent, God would send rescue. And each time he would send a rescuer, it came in the form of a flawed hero. It came in the form of a judge. And the broken judge, the broken hero that we're going to look at this morning, his name was Gideon. And many of you probably know his story. And this morning, I don't have four points. I just want to work through the story of Gideon and his life in chapters 6 and 7 and draw some things from it. Hopefully, the Lord uses this to um, show you what he wants you to know. And so here's a little bit of a, a backstory to Gideon's life because we don't have time to cover two entire chapters, verse by verse. But I want to give you a backstory, really in the first 10 verses of Judges chapter 6. And you might recognize, as I explain this story, you might recognize this storyline from a famous movie from about 25 years ago. Tell me if you recognize it. So for about seven years, the hill people called the Midianites would invade Israel. They would come into Israel during the time of the harvest. And they would raid the harvest and they would raid the crops and the livestock of the Israelites. And they would come in, they would oppress the people, and they would devour all of the fruits of their labor. So you have the Israelites doing all this work all summer long. They're working toward the harvest and they're preparing for the winter. They're preparing their crops and they're doing all of this effort. And then comes the Midianites in to steal all of it away from underneath of them. And there's nothing that the Israelites could do. They were simply outnumbered, they were out, um, outmatched, they were outpowered. 
The Midianites were so powerful and so cruel that the Israelites were forced into mountains and they were forced into caves in order to hide and to spare their own lives. And this happened year after year after year after year. It happened for seven straight years. So if you read the first part of Judges chapter 6, you're going to see, and even hearing some of that backstory explanation, you see kind of the movie that was inspired by it, right? Anybody recognize what that is? A bug's life. Have you ever seen that animated movie? Children's movie? It, the Israelites were the, uh, the ants and the Midianites were the grasshoppers and the grasshoppers would come in and steal all of their fruits and completely decimate uh, the, the area where the ants would live. And so I, I kind of feel like after thinking about this this week, I was reading this, I'm like, this is a movie plot line right here. Somebody owes the Holy Spirit some royalties for A Bug's Life. That movie made hundreds of millions of dollars. But that's kind of the story that we see here. And the Israelites, they're in this place where they got sick of the oppression. They're sick of the Midianites and the Amalekites coming in and stealing all their crops and being oppressed by them and losing all of their livestock and all of these things. And so they repent of their sin and they cry out to God for rescue. God sends to them an angel to have a conversation with our protagonist, our, our main character this morning, who is Gideon. And we're going we're gonna to pick up in Gideon's story in verse 11 of chapter 6 of Judges. You have to bear with me this morning. My voice is going to go here pretty soon. I've been fighting off a head cold for the last week, but we're going to try to get through this um, through the power of the Spirit this morning. Let's look at verse 11. It says this, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth that Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiah's right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And so we're introduced to our main character of the story, Gideon. And Gideon, we find him in a wine press, a wine press threshing wheat at the bottom of a big hole. Now, I'm not much of a, a wheat thresher. In fact, I've never threshed wheat before. I'm not a farmer. I don't know anything about these things, but it's generally understood. If you know anything about how these things work, it's understood that threshing wheat was something that you would typically do at the top of a hill or at the top of a mountain where there was a lot of exposure to wind. A farmer would, what he would do is he would crush the heads of, of the grain of the wheat on the threshing floor. Then he would take a winnowing fork and he would pick it up, and he would throw it and toss it up into the wind, and then the grain would fall back to the threshing floor, and the wheat, or the chaff, I should say, the chaff would be blown off in the wind, and that's how they would um, refine this process. That's how a farmer would separate the chaff from the wheat. And so wind was kind of an essential ingredient in this whole process of refining in, in the harvest. And so we're introduced to Gideon, and he's underground. He's in a pit. And he's doing this work, and it's twice as hard as it should be. And the question becomes, what is he doing in this pit? Well, I think we all know Gideon is a coward. But God's about to do something really great. Because God has a way of showing up. He has a way of showing off using some of the most unlikely vessels. And he loves to use people that are underdogs. He, he loves to use the people that everyone else looks past, the people that think they have no opportunity to do anything special with their life. And the angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now this statement almost seems 
like, a, like it's like drenched in sarcasm, doesn't it? Because Gideon in this moment, he is not a man of valor. He is not a mighty warrior. He is not trained in combat. He is a simple peasant farmer who is doing the work of one that should be done on a hilltop. He's doing it in a pit in order to save his own life. And so this angel shows up and basically calls him a man of valor. And out of fear, Gideon was forced to work in this pit twice as hard just to survive. And the angel says, you are a mighty man of God. You are a mighty man of valor. And this is Gideon's response as we work down through this text this morning. Verse 13, Gideon says this, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, um, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So in Gideon's mind, God was neither great, God was neither close, he wasn't big, and he wasn't powerful. God had completely abandoned Israel in Gideon's mind. Their situation was, by all intents and purposes, it was a dumpster fire. And he felt like God was the one that was responsible. And this is kind of what we do thousands of years later, isn't it? The very people, us, that rebel against God and we, we, we set this world on fire metaphorically. We look to God who we rebelled against and we say, God, this is your fault. Why didn't you prevent this? Many of you know the, uh, the modern day philosopher, Billy Joel. <laughs> uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, he wrote a song and he said, we didn't start the fire. I would say Billy Joel was very wrong in that situation. We did start the fire. In fact, we struck the match to God's good creation and we poured gasoline and fuel on it and we lit this fire. And the fact of the matter is we live in a broken world today because we are broken ourselves. This world has fallen because man is fallen. We lit this fire, we, we put kindling on it and we continue to fuel it in our own rebellion against God. And so understand that God is now looking for courageous warriors who will partner with him in order to be um, a part of his plan for redemption for his fallen creation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, in spite of maybe, in spite of how you see yourself, each and every one of you were created for God's good pleasure and you were created to walk in the purposes that God has for you. And my question this morning for you is this, are you walking in those purposes? Because here's Gideon and he's, he's doing anything but walking in God's purposes. He's just trying to preserve his life. He's just trying to hide away from being noticed. Are you walking in God's good purposes for you? You and I, folks, we get one shot at this life. We get one attempt to make a difference for the Lord, to be a part of what he is doing in the redemption of this world. And he wants us to walk in his purposes for us. Each and every one of us have been uniquely wired. We've been uniquely gifted and shaped in order to be used by God for his purposes. Are you walking in those purposes? I know a lot of us, we use a lot of excuses as to why we don't walk in those purposes. We have a lot of fear. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not enough. 
I'm afraid I'm going to lose everything that I've worked so hard for that God's going to ask me to sacrifice too much. I fear I'll never get past my past. I fear I'm too broken. I'm too wounded. I fear I'm not prepared enough. I fear that God has not equipped me properly. I fear that God can never use someone like me. I've just got too much fear. You know, courage is not the absence of fear, but the determination that something else is more important. And what could be more important than you walking in God's purposes for which he has created you for in your generation? You know, the world will never be impacted by Christians who simply sit on the sidelines and, and ask God to never let anything bad happen to them. You know, think about this. Think about your tombstone. What do you want to be written or engraved on your tombstone? I don't think that any of you want your tombstone to, to read this. Here lies Jim. He never took a risk for God, but at least nothing bad ever happened to him. Nobody wants that to be on their tombstone. When you sign up for a life of following Christ, you're not signing up for an insurance plan. You're signing up for a dangerous plan. God did not save you in order to keep you safe and secure all the time. Jesus did not die to keep you completely 100% safe. Jesus died not to give you an insurance plan on this earth. He died to make you dangerous. He died to use you in his redemption purposes. And he wants to do just that. So my my question to you this morning is, what risk has God called you to step into that you refuse to obey out of fear? You know, maybe for you, it's the risk of ending a relationship that's unhealthy, that is dishonoring to the Lord. Maybe it's a risk of, like you're afraid of stepping out and being vulnerable and trying to find friends or trying to find community or doing life together. Maybe joining that small group is what God is asking you to do to take a risk. Maybe it's to see a counselor. Maybe it's forgiving that person that has wounded you so many years ago. Maybe it's starting a spiritual conversation. Each and every one of us have good works that we were created for, so walk in them. So here's Gideon. He's not quite yet ready to walk in these good works, but he's working up toward it. God is getting them there. Let's look at verse 14 of of Judges chapter 6. It says, And the Lord turned to him and he said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And how quickly we can forget how powerful God is. God comes to Gideon and he says, you're my guy, Gideon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to deliver Israel. I'm going to do something great through you. I want you to do this for my purpose and I want you to walk in for the re- I want you to walk in these steps that I have created you for. You're the guy. And Gideon responds to him and says, God, I'm not the guy. I'm the wrong guy. I'm not the one that you can use. I'm the smallest one in my family. My family is the smallest in my clan. My clan is the smallest in my tribe. And my tribe is one of the smallest in all of Israel. I am not the guy that you are looking for, God. He's got all kinds of fear. How many of you have ever felt like Gideon? Where God has tapped your shoulder and says, I want to use you for this purpose. And in fear, you crouch or you slink back. You say, God, I'm not your guy. Have you ever felt like Gideon? God responds to Gideon's excuses one after another. 
in verse 16, and he says this. He says, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. How quickly we forget that God goes before us, that he has us covered. You know, we love, we love to quote that verse from Philippians I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's one of our favorite verses, right? Many of us have that memorized that we quote it from time to time. And we love to quote that until it comes time when we actually get called by God to do something that requires the power of Christ and for us to walk in his power. Man, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can I tell you something a little bit personal about me? I fear as a pastor. I fear all the time. I walk in fear all the time. Every time I get up in front of you at this pulpit, man, I want to vomit every time I get up here to preach. And I know that's hard for some people to believe, but I get sick to my stomach. I get so nervous. I'm so afraid of the responsibility. I'm so afraid of this tremendous privilege that God has given me. I fear I'm at 45 years old. I fear preparing for retirement. I'm at that point where I have to get really serious about my retirement, and I fear what that looks like. I fear as my girls get older and older into their teenage years and into their young adult years, I fear that one day when they grow up and they're out of the house, that they won't love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength, and I can't control it. I fear that my girls won't serve the Lord the way we've raised them to. I fear which car is going to break down next and how much money that's going to cost. Because with my vehicles, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when it's going to happen. I fear these things. I fear when I'm going to get rejected next by that next person. And I realize as I think about all these fears, I am Gideon. I have all kinds of fears in my life and I love to use them as excuses as as to why I can say to God, I am not your guy. God, you can't use me. But then God reminds me, Chris, I've gotten you this far. I'm going to be with you. Trust me with your next step, and I'll get you where I want you to go. And so my whole life has followed a familiar pattern. And it looks like this. Fear. Step. Fear. Step. Fear. Step. Every step of the way, I sense fear. Every step of the way, the enemy is knocking at my doorstep and he wants to discourage me and he wants to defeat me. But all I keep doing is stepping. And you know what? I've realized over 45 years that God has walked with me every step of the way in spite of my fears. He has used me. He has brought me to this place in this day because I simply stepped out and he carried me all the way through. He has never left me. He has never abandoned me. He has never disappointed me. He has always been faithful in spite of the unknown and in spite of my fears. And I'll be honest, not everything in my life has worked out the way I would have mapped it out. My life doesn't look exactly like I dreamed it would be in every area. And there are times where I'm disappointed with God because the truth is, I want to control things. I don't always want to release control to God. And so when things don't go the way I wish they would, I get frustrated because I don't always understand what God is doing. But man, I predecided a long time ago that no matter what God brings my way, even though I don't understand everything that he's doing in the moment, I predecided a long time ago, I will trust him. 
I predecided that even though he slay me, blessed be the name of the Lord. Dan sang that song this morning. Blessed be his name. I predecided that so many years ago so that when uncertainty comes into my life, when the enemy creeps in and tries to present doubt to me, when things don't play out like I had hoped and like I had planned, and when unsuspecting tragedy comes my way, I have predecided, blessed be the name of the Lord. I will follow Christ and I will hold on. My question to you this morning is, what have you predecided about God in your life? Because predecisions and predeterminations can really be a benefit to the Christian who is going through a season of chaos. Because a lot of times those seasons, don't, you don't necessarily see them coming. And so when you've made a predecision about who God is and you choose to believe truth rather than, rather than the circumstances around you or rather than the lies of the enemy, it sustains you and you hold on to Jesus Christ with all your hope because you made a predetermination to be faithful to him. But see, Gideon still hasn't made this predecision. He still doesn't believe that God can do anything significant in his life because he doesn't believe that he's serving a significant God. Gideon needs to take a few little baby steps along the way in order to build his faith and to build his courage to walk in God's good works for him. You know, rarely, very rarely does God pluck someone out of obscurity and overnight turn them into a William Wallace, right? Very rarely does someone turn into a hero overnight. He oftentimes has to prepare them for the big stage. And the first thing that God asks Gideon to do as he's preparing him for what he's called him to walk into is he tells him, Gideon, I want you to destroy the altars to Baal and I want you to pull down the Asherah pole and I want you to use your father's two bulls in order to do this. And these Asherah poles and these altars that were built to Baal, these these were religious symbols of of paganism and the practices that they participated in um, all throughout Israel because of the enemy's influence. And it involved a lot of, again, paganism, um, sexual immorality. It involved even child sacrifice. And it disgusted God. It angered him, and he would not tolerate it. Um, he would not tolerate their presence among his people. And so the problem for Gideon in this moment is God said, I'm going to give you a little test. I'm going to give you one little task, and I just want you to do this, and I'm going to build you into something that becomes a, a, a mighty warrior on behalf of me. But the problem for Gideon is that his dad is the one who has the altars to Baal. His dad is the one that has the Asherah pole in his front yard. And this is a big deal. But Gideon still decides, okay, I'm going to take this step. I'm going to obey God. This is risky. I'm afraid. But this is what I'm going to do. And look at verse 27. It says this. "Um, So Gideon, he took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So Gideon takes a step. Fear, step. Fear, step. And he's still afraid. He's stepping forward, but he's still afraid. So he carries out God's command. He does it under the cover of night because he doesn't want to be found out. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to put his life in jeopardy. But what happens the next day is the townspeople find out it actually was Gideon who was the mastermind behind all of this. He was the one that destroyed the altars and the Asherah pole. He was the one that, that, that tore down their religious um, relics of worship. And they want to destroy Gideon. Look at verse 31. It says this, 
But Joash said to all, Joash is, again, Gideon's father. But Joash said to all who stood against Gideon, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, if Baal is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Gideon has just enough faith to step out, to take one step. And you know what I notice in this is that sometimes the courage of one leads to the courage of two. And sometimes the courage of two leads to a group of people that have bold courage. And sometimes a group of people turns into a multitude because one person decided to step out in faith and risk it, even in spite of the fear. They wanted God to use them. And I see this in Gideon's life. Gideon has just enough step, uh, just enough courage to step out. And that one person, Gideon, becomes two. Now it's his father, Joash. It's Gideon and dad. It's father and son. And they are now on the Lord's side. And it's, it's almost, as I'm reading this, it's almost as if Joash, Gideon's father, it's almost as if he's waiting this whole time for someone to come along and inspire him and just do what he was afraid to do himself. He was waiting for someone to summon up the courage so that he could follow them. And what it tells me is that courage often comes in the company of community. Folks, you need community in your life. We have a phrase around here that we like to use that life change happens best in community. We need each other. There's no such thing as biblical Lone Ranger Christians. We need to be fellowshipping together. We need to be worshiping together. We need to be daily breaking open God's word with one another. And the the courage and the boldness that comes from that community can be transformative in our lives. Look at verse 32, chapter 6. Further on, therefore on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So here's Gideon. He, God is like formulating a whole new identity in who Gideon really is. He's saying, Gideon, you see yourself as this, but I'm going to make you this. And so they give him a brand new name, a brand new identity, Jeroboam. And what it means is let Baal defend himself. And so essentially what what Gideon becomes known as is a bail butt whooper. You know, like he becomes a bail butt whooper. He, he, he contends for God. He fights against Baal. He tears down the altars. He tears down the Asherah poles. And you'd think by now, Gideon would have just enough courage to step into what God has called him to. You'd think he'd be ready to go to war, but Gideon's still a coward. Look at verse 36. It kind of goes further into this. You're very familiar with this part of the story, I'm guessing. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, God, if you're going to use me, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And when he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece. He wrung out enough dew from, from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Like God left no doubt as to what he was doing and what he was showing Gideon. And then Gideon says to God, hey, let not your anger burn against me, but let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. And please let it be dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, let there be dew. 
And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. So here's Gideon, still a man that is lacking courage. He's building it. God is turning him into something. He's conforming him into something, but he's not quite there yet. So he has to test God two more times out of fear just to make sure God really means business. It wasn't enough that God said he would use him. Gideon needed more proof. And the question for us is, how many times have you laid out the fleece of fear in your life looking for God? How many times has God called you to something and you know he's tapped you on the shoulder, but you refuse to obey because God has not made it obvious? How many times do we say these things to ourselves and to God? God, if if you'll do this, then I'll believe. If you'll just give me a sign, I'll follow If you'll just prove it one more time, I will trust you. But God, you're going to have to make it really obvious because I lack faith. Otherwise, I shall not be moved. Man, how many times do we live that way and approach God that way? But when has God ever operated that way in history, in relationship with his people? He never does. He never just lays out the entire plan for people. He often calls them to take a step and says, Follow me, and I will take you where I want you to go. You don't need to know the beginning from the end. You don't need to know how all this plays out perfectly. Just trust me. But oftentimes, we want God to bulldoze the way and to make the path straight, to make it safe, to protect us along the way. But even in our fear and our lack of courage, God is patient with us. He's patient with Gideon in this moment. Not one time does God belittle or berate Gideon because of his lack of courage. Because he knows what he's going to transform Gideon into. He knows what he's making Gideon. And that's the difference between God and Satan's influence in our lives. God sees who he is making you to become, and he conforms you to Christ and to to walk into your future in Christ. And he lifts you up into that. He says to you, I know this is what you were, but I'm going to make you something new. I'm going to make you something better. I'm going to use you uh, for my purposes through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in your life. And he calls us up into that. But when Satan sees us, he sees what we've done. And what does he do? He condemns us for our past of sin. And he wants to keep us there. He wants to hold us down. Folks, there's a chance that some of you in here this morning, even at this stage in your life, however long you've been walking with Christ, there are some of you that might be stunted in your discipleship and in your walk with the Lord because you're paralyzed by the condemnation of your past. You're paralyzed by the condemnation of your sin rather than walking in your true identity in Christ. And there are a lot of us that don't understand who we are in Jesus and what he has made us to become and the power that is within us. Through Christ, Romans 8.37 says, we are more than conquerors through Christ. 1 John 5.4 says, for everyone who has been born of God, everyone who is in Christ Jesus overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Gideon may not yet be brave. You may not yet be brave, but God is long-suffering with us. God is patient toward us. And oftentimes, God does not call the brave. He makes brave the called. Think about that. If you're waiting for that bravery to come, it may never come. 
But if he calls you and you will step into, into that calling and faith, he will make you to become brave in ways that you never dreamed. So after overhearing a conversation between enemy soldiers in the enemy camp, one night Gideon is finally to a place where he's seen enough of God, he's seen God work enough, and he's ready to fully trust. He's now been clothed with the Spirit of God, which gives him almost a supernatural confidence. He's walking in the Spirit. And so he gathers the Israelites together, he puts an army together, a respectable little army of 32,000 men. Well, the problem with that number 32,000 is that the Midianite army and the other armies of the east that all um, formed an alliance together, there was actually 135,000 of them. So even from the get-go, before the battle ever started, Israel is outnumbered four to one. How in the world is Israel supposed to pull off a victory? But somehow God still thinks that Gideon has too many men. He's like, Gideon, you got to trim this thing down a little bit. He says, go to the people. If any of them are afraid, go ahead and send them home. So Gideon goes to his men. He asks them, if you're afraid, you can go home. 22,000 soldiers tuck their tail and walk away from potential battle. Israel is now outnumbered 13 to 1. And God says, Gideon, you still got too many men. You still got too many people to fight. If you go into battle with 10,000 men and you win, you're going to be tempted to think that you did this. This is not for your glory. You are not the one that is going to take um, the accolades from this battlefield. And so, so Gideon is like, God, what do you want me to do? Every step of the way, I've slowly been faithful to you and, and I'm slowly building in my courage, but this don't make any sense, God. What are you trying to do? What would you like me to do from here? And this is what God commands him in chapter seven now. Let's, let's look at verses five through seven. It says this, so, so Gideon brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink and the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his own home. God wants to trim this army down to 300 men. Gideon is now outnumbered 450 to one. God loves it when the odds are stacked against him, doesn't he? You know, when you think it's impossible, when you think you're at the end of your rope, when you think you're outnumbered, when you think you're in over your head, you're probably right in the place where God wants to use you the most because God wants to show his power in you. He wants to show his power through you. And I'm telling you folks, every time I step out in fear, every time I take a step in spite of it, God grows a little bit bigger in my life and my faith grows a little bit deeper. But every time I shrink back, God grows a little bit smaller and my faith diminishes. Step out, take a step. So Gideon, he goes back with his 300 men and he gives them the battle plan. This battle plan, it involves a pot to break, a trumpet to blow, and a torch to shine. There is not one single weapon of war among them. Would any of you sign up for that, that battle? Would any of you volunteer to go to this fight? None of this makes sense to Gideon, but he finally has the courage to follow God. 
So they go to the Midianite camp in the dead of night. They begin breaking their jars. They blow their horns, their trumpets, and they shout at the top of their lungs, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they're waving their torches all around the perimeter of the Midianite camp. And this is in the middle of the night. So the Midianites, the army is woken up, all 135,000 of them. They're woken up in a panic. And what do they do? They can't see. They don't know what's going on. They just know they're hearing crashing. They're hearing trumpets. They're seeing torches and they're hearing screams and shouts. And so they panic and they start killing one another and all this army is completely wiped out or almost entirely wiped out and Israel never has to lift a sword and they never have to fight someone needs to hear this this morning the battle belongs to the Lord it's not your fight your job is to simply move forward in faith you don't have to hold the world together you don't have to produce all of the results You don't have to have all of the answers. Just take a step. Just step out in faith, even when you're fearful. Fear. Step. Fear. Step. And if you will step in spite of your fear, God promises us that he will go with us, he will go before us, and he will fight for us. Gideon was finally courageous enough to let God lead him and to let God fight for him. So my question as we close out this morning is, what if you were like Gideon? What if you were willing to let God fight for you? What if you were willing to take a risk and to follow God into the unknown, into the unsecure, into the chaos of the future? And I want you to understand that the purpose of your life is not to arrive safely at death's door. God is looking for a generation of people who will live dangerously and who will dare to follow him into the dangers of the unknown for the sake of his mission, for the sake of the unreached of the world. So what if you stepped into all that God created you to be, just like Gideon did? Maybe it's time for some of us, just like little Zia Terry on the video, maybe it's time for some of us to stand at the top of that jump, to step into our ski boots, to lean into it and say, here goes something. God, take me on a dangerous journey. Use me for your purposes. And even though I don't know how it's all going to work out, I am trusting you with my next step. God wants to use you. Will you step out in faith and allow him? Heavenly Father.